The Interpreter Show with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. Welcome to the <coughs> Interpreter Radio Show. This is Bruce Webster with Chris Fredrickson. And hang on a second. Martin, are you there? I am here. Okay, so we've got Martin. Okay. This is the Interpreter Radio Show, sponsored by the Interpreter Foundation, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the scriptures, history, and doctrine of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. You can find all our excellent resources at interpreterfoundation.org. That's interpreterfoundation.org. Uh, tonight we're going to cover first the Come Follow Me for John chapters 2 through 4, uh, where they're then going to have a uh, quick, Martin, remind me what our second segment is. <laughs> Well, it, it's usually from the Institute Manual, but, but we don't have one of those tonight. So the, the next one that we're going to cover is Restoration Advocacy. Okay, and we will we be go. talking about some issues there. And, uh, yeah, Trinitarianism and so on. And, uh, and then we're going to talk about, and we actually just had Van Hale, who was just on, uh, show the Church News article where the Church itself is pointing people to places such as Bible Hub. For their study of the New Testament, uh, and so we're going to talk about different resources, different English translations of the Bible, and things that we have. Uh, let's start with John two through four for this first segment. John, of course, you've got the three synoptic Gospels: uh, Mark, Matthew, and Luke, which we've talked about, and uh, which other other radio hosts have talked about. Then you have John, who has a different approach. He has a lot of original material that's not found elsewhere. He does have some stories that are found in the Synoptic Gospels. But his, his approach is, I don't want to say, his, his approach is theological. It really is. The... Uh, I had classes from Kent Brown and Wilford Griggs when I was an undergraduate at BYU, and I, one of them made this comment, and I think it was Wilford Griggs, uh, because I took New Testament Greek from him, said uh, he was once talking with Hugh Nibley and said, you know, we should really do a uh, commentary on uh, the book of John, and uh, specifically John chapter 1 and... Uh, Hugh said, yes, the problem is, is that it would be 600 pages, and that would be just be chapter 1. Uh, <laughs> the, so the book, book of John has got a, a different approach, and the thing to keep in mind as we read it is that John is bearing witness of the divinity and sonship of Christ. Uh, his role as the Son of God, his role as the Savior, his role as the creator of the earth. Uh, and that he keeps going back to that. So we'll see that time and again 
in the, the actual text. So we're going to start off with John chapter 2, where we have the, the uh, first miracle. This is in uh, Cana. It says there was a marriage that was going on, and Mary, Jesus' mother, was somehow involved uh, because uh, they... <coughs> Uh, she gets Jesus and his disciples to come to the marriage, and when there is a sudden shortage of wine, they turn to Mary and ask her about it. And uh, she she turns to Jesus and says they're out of wine. And, and, and Jesus says, why is this my concern? Why is this my business? Uh, I'm, I'm still, he says, my hour has not yet come. Uh and Mary very tactfully just tells us the servants, whatever Jesus tells you to do, just do that. Uh, somewhere in here I have an image of, of Jesus sort of giving a little sigh, thinking probably this isn't exactly how I was going to start things. But <laughs> And there were six large water pots. We're, we're talking gallons, each one holding gallons of water. Uh, used for for purifying. In other words, you had the Jewish tradition was to wash your hands before eating and so on. And so they would have water they would dip in and bring it out. And so they had these stone pots, and he said, fill it with fresh water and then draw it out and and, uh, serve it to the guests or take it to the governor of the feast, basically the MC, the host of the feast. And the interesting thing here is that the servants do – they actually – do what he asks. They follow Mary. Sings like, well, okay, we're doing we're doing the uh, water, and I'm I, I think it was a great act of faith on the part of the servants to fill these up with water, and then Jesus says, okay, dish it up, take it to the governor, and they take it, and of course the governor says, wait a second, said this is really good wine. You you, you serve the best wine first, and then you give the people the cheap wine once they're sufficiently intoxicated. How come we're, we're just getting the good wine now? Uh, and it says this was the beginning of, of miracles. Uh, Martin, your thoughts and observations. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me, a couple of quick thoughts here. The first one is that this was a pretty big event. You have six stone jars that each contained about 20 or 30 gallons each. That's a lot. And to have run out and need theoretically that many more, that's, that must have been a huge event. That was an enormous event. Um, another thought is is that there are a number of early LDF leaders who say, oh, this was Jesus' own marriage. And in if you really look through the text, I just don't see how that's possible because there are references to Jesus and then separate references to the groom and your, your observation that um, Mary tells the servants to obey Jesus. Well, if he were really the groom, everybody would do whatever he said anyway, and that's Mary's intervention um, to tell the servants to do what he tells you wouldn't probably have have been necessary. And a a final quick preliminary comment, which 
which is that um well i'll 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 save this for when we this next comment for when we get past the the wedding at cana okay okay I'm done. <laughs> yeah so i I'm particularly enamored with any story in the Bible that has to do with women. We see a Jesus Christ here who has three short years of public ministry. this is the beginning of his public ministry. Um, the story of his ministry really begins with John the Baptist when Jesus goes to him and he's baptized by him. Nevertheless, here we have Jesus Christ and he is at this marriage in Cana and he's interacting freely with women. He's socializing with women. And everything that Jesus does with regards to women in his three-year public ministry, I would argue, is intended to elevate the status of women in Jewish society during this period of time and to point out some of the ways that women function in this society as well. And this is what we see in this instance. We see a marriage. It's in Cana. It's about 10 miles from Nazareth. It's likely that this is, as was mentioned before, a family wedding of, of some kind, you know, whose exactly it is. But for Mary to stand up at the wedding feast, for them to come to her and to tell her that you know, we are out of wine indicates that she is playing a significant role in this marriage. Otherwise, she never would have, they never would have gone to her. She never would have stood up and she never would have tried to solve or resolve the problem. And yet she does. So she gets up and she goes immediately to her son, Jesus Christ. Now, the first thing we see here, which I find quite interesting, is Jesus comes with his disciples to a wedding. So we don't think a lot about this, but here's a Jesus that socializes with people, that likes to be with people. That is, in essence, sanctioning the idea of marriage. Marriage feasts could last up to one to two weeks, actually, during this period of time. And so I've heard up to 100 to 150 gallons in each of these huge gherkins or water pots that are being refilled. And so she goes to him and she, she says, we are out of water. And the best translation of what he says to her is the Joseph Smith translation, where it says, woman, what wilt thou have me do for thee? That I will do, for mine hour is not yet come. Now, I think this is a very transitional point in Jesus and Mary's relationship. Jesus is saying that I have been a dutiful, obedient son. You have mentored me. You have loved me. But from this time forward, my entire focus is going to be on doing the will of my father. I'm happy to do this for you. I'm happy to try to effect a solution to the problem here. It also sort of suggests to me that perhaps Mary has seen evidence of Jesus's powers. I mean, look, this is a young man that at 12 years old was in the temple teaching the, um, the, you know, the scribes and the Pharisees, the great, you know, teachers of the Bible. So this is an extraordinary individual. And without hesitation, she says, you do exactly what my son says. So again, that establishes her authority. We also notice that any mention of Joseph is missing in this wedding feast. Now, it's very unlikely that Joseph would not have been there if he was still alive. That sort of suggests that to me. So that's something to consider as well for a little later on in the chapter. And so um, she tells the servants, do exactly what he says. And so those six water pots are going to be filled. You know, as I mentioned, Martin said 20 to 30. I've heard up to 100, 150 gallons each. They're huge. And, um, and Jesus is going to resolve the problem. Of course, once they're filled, we don't see him doing anything. We don't see him saying anything. We simply see then he is there. He's told to take it to the governor of the feast. And when it is presented, as Bruce pointed out, the governor of the feast is just, you know, ecstatic. This is the best wine that, you know, far better than the wine that you began this feast with. And so there's a lot going on here. There's Jesus Christ 
Christ announcing from this time forward, I'm going to be completely focused on my Father's will. We see at the end of the chapter as well, after this he went down to Capernaum. Now, any writer or literary person or, you know, anyone, any dramatist is going to tell you they don't include something that there's not a reason for it. So they're going to Capernaum. He's going there with his mother, his brethren, and his disciples. And there are many that suggest that what he's doing is telling them, all right, I'm going to take up my public ministry at this time forward. But the fact that Mary is with him, that she follows him, it seems that Mary is with him. Again, that sort of suggests that she's an independent woman or she's on her own by this period of time. And she's going to be one of those faithful women that is going to accommodate and help her son so that he can fulfill his mission. You can't go without eating. You can't go without drinking. You can't go without places to stay. He needs places to meet with others. Many of the women, these Galilean women are going to um, be um, fervent um, disciples. Some of them have money, others of them don't, but they are going to accommodate and they're going to make it possible for Jesus to focus on his mission from this time forward. So this is an extraordinary time. He's with them, he's at the feast, he's enjoying it, he's sanctioning marriage, he's performing a miracle. And I always think to myself, what it would have been like to be a servant and to see this miracle. And what's fascinating is, There's no Jesus saying, okay, everybody pay attention, watch what I'm about to do, and he performs a miracle. There's none of that whatsoever. It is done, but the servants that are serving the wine, they know what he has done. And this had to be quite extraordinary for them that Jesus makes no show about what he has done. He simply performs this miracle, but this is is so characteristic of Jesus Christ. Well, and to Chris's last point, that's actually characteristic of of Christ's ministry, Mm -hmm. where he would repeatedly perform miracles, sometimes great miracles, Mm -hmm. and then say, uh, you know, do do what's necessary, but don't go don't go broadcasting this. Uh, So, Martin, do you have any more thoughts on this this section before we move on? Uh, No, I'm I'm good with this. Okay, so now we get the uh, (laughs) one of my favorite memes. Uh, which I've, I've posted a number of times, is a meme of uh, Christ clear, clearing the temple and says, if someone asks you what would Jesus do, remind them that whipping people and turning over tables is among the, the acts. Uh, so we have Jesus, we have Passover coming up, and I believe John records three Passovers, and there, there are some issues, discussions between the Synoptic Gospels and uh, John as to how many Passover, Passovers for which Jesus was in Jerusalem. This is, I believe, the first of three mm-hmm. that is accounted within John. It says, And found in the temple those that sold auction and sheep and doves and the changers of Mungie sitting. Money changers were there because you had uh, people coming literally from, from all over the region, but you had to have used the temple shekels. Uh, for donations to the temple and so on. So you had money changers going on, and there were always questions as to what kind of exchange rate they were giving and how honest it was. Any of you who have been to a state fair can recognize the the uh, manure and the smells that you're going to have mm-hmm. if you have livestock penned up there. Oops. Are you back, Martin? Yes. Okay. Uh, 
That's and, a great comparison because it's kind of a carnivalesque oh, yeah. atmosphere. But but if you you know this this is an opposite. Now I'm assuming that this is probably in the court of the women. You had a series of courts. Uh, the or excuse me, court of the Gentiles, which was the largest area, uh, but was still within the bounds of the temple. Uh, yeah, the court of the Gentiles, and you've got the court of the women. Then you have the court of the priests, and you have the which has the altar and the laver in it, which is where the sacrifices are actually done. And then within that, you've got the holy place and the holy of holies. Uh, but even, and, and because of the size, the, the, the court of the Gentiles was about the size of the rest of the temple put together. Uh, and you, you sort of have this having that goes on for the, the different mm-hmm. things. This would be not a... <laughs> terribly reverent or pleasant means to get to the temple. Uh, it, would, it, would, it would almost literally like be having the livestock exhibit of the state fair set up outside the entrance to one of our temples. Uh, and like I said, you've got the sounds, you've got the smells, you've got the, the commerce actively going on, and so on and so forth. And uh, you have James Talmadge like to point out that he takes the time to make a scourge of small cords so he's not reacting, you know, impulsively, but he uses that to drive them all out of the temple and basically overturns it, money changers temples. Uh, Tamil just points out that with the doves, he doesn't do anything. He says, please get them out of here. They, they are the most vulnerable of the, the turtle doves, the most vulnerable of the animals. Uh, and the Jews are very unhappy. So I'll take it to that point and we'll go to Chris first and then Martin. Okay. Um, <clears throat> Jesus has likely been to Passover before. This is not his yeah. first time, but this is the first time that he is 30 years old. And because he's 30 years old, he can assume the rights of a Jewish teacher. And so he approaches. He goes straight to the temple from everything that we read here. So as he re- reaches Jerusalem, he is going to go straight to the temple. And righteous with righteous indignation, he is going to cast out all those that are polluting God's house. And this is the problem for him. It's quite interesting. In our um, in my temple shift, you always have the prayer meeting before. And in the prayer meeting, the matron, one of the matrons, was talking to us. And she said, we would like to encourage you sisters to use very quiet, soft, reverent voices in the temple. And then, as I was reading and prepping for the lesson, I read this. And I thought, oh, my goodness. You know, imagine what Jesus Christ came upon recognizing the significance of this temple as God's holy house. And yet the way that it was being so grossly polluted, not only by merchandise, but the sounds, the cackling, the noise, and everything that was taking place there at that period of time. And so he wants to make it, he wants to make it clear that this is completely unacceptable. What is really quite fascinating here is the fact that no one really castigates him for it. There's no law against, there's no law enforcement activity against what he has done or temple authority activity, uh, you know, um, you know, um, condemning him or um, uh, applying penalties for what he has done, which is basically an admission by all those there that in some form or another, they recognize that what they were doing was totally inappropriate in God's holy house. And really, the only exchange that he has with the Jews is when, um, you know, they're devoid of the spirit of the Holy Ghost, of course. They have no clue what Jesus is doing or why he does what he does. But um, they are going to not really make a protest, but they're going to say, well, you know, by what authority do you do this? 
So that's their question to him. That's their first trying to poke him in the eye. You know, do you really have the authority to do this? Which, of course, opens up Jesus Christ's opportunity to tell them that, you know, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now, these are powerful words because while they are thinking, of course, clearly along the lines of this physical temple that's right before their eyes, Jesus Christ is speaking about his body. It's interesting. We talk about a body as a temple. In some sense, I think Jesus Christ realizes that, that we're to reverence our physical bodies, but he is going to articulate here the fact that his physical body and his spiritual largesse or his, you know, spiritual perfection is going to allow him then to atone for the sins of mankind, and I will be resurrected three days after I am killed. What's lovely about this is that it's only three short years later, or a little less perhaps, when he is going to be crucified. And this is going to be another testimonial to his disciples and to the 12 who are now going to take over leadership of the church, wherein they are going to recognize that there was Christ again prophesying exactly what would happen to him, and it has, and now it's our duty and responsibility to move forward the kingdom of God on earth. Uh, I'll just add briefly before we pass over to Martin that even though they, they say, well, you know, 40 and six years it was this temple and building, you know, and you'll raise it up in three days. And yet, as per Chris's comment, when he is crucified, the Jews are well aware. Said, they said, he said he was going to resurrect himself after three days. We need to post a guard on the tomb. Mm-hmm. They knew well what his actual meaning was, at least by the time of his crucifixion. Mm-hmm. Martin, over to you. Thank you. Um, one of the things that's important to know about the Gospel of John is that it was, according to early Christian tradition, written very late in the life of John the Apostle. And the purpose, according to early Christians, uh, was to have a gospel that would appeal to the Gentiles, the Greek-speaking people who were not Jewish and didn't know too much about it, because, of course, if, if you read Matthew, it starts out with a Jewish genealogy that appeals to Jewish people. John Mark, who was the author of Mark, his, his story there, and, and also, to a certain degree, Luke's, really are enmeshed in Jewish uh, law and culture and would instantly be recognizable to, to Jews. But John's different. The, the opening verses of John have this uh, very um, Greek way of, of describing God and, and references to the Word and, and um, descriptions that would be something that a Greek-speaking Gentile would find fascinating, and so they would be drawn in. And another way that we know that the Gospel of John that we're discussing here was specifically written to non-Jews, to Greeks, although, you know, certainly Jewish people would have read it and found it wonderful as well, is that in verse 13, you're not talking about, okay, it's time for Passover, it's the Jewish Passover. And at several different places here, we're talking in verse 18 about the Jewish leaders. It's it's not the leaders said this or the Pharisees said that. You're talking about the Jews. And so so you have these kinds of references uh, and additional descriptions that would have been helpful to 
outsiders, if you will, to, to understand what's going on here. This uh, incident at the temple also shows that unlike sort of the traditional view of Jesus that people have in Christianity of him being kind of a mild, meek person, he could find anger. He, he didn't just scold these guys. I mean, he fashioned a whip, and he, and he was angry, and he was violent, if, if, if you will. You know, he, in our era, he could have been arrested. Mm-hmm. I mean, disturbing the peace, uh, destruction of property. I, you know, I mean, this is, this is a fascinating act, and it shows that he had the full range of human emotions and that he could feel anger towards people who he felt were doing what was wrong. And especially we see Are you there, Did Martin? We lose him? We might have lost him. I think we lost Martin. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But and I'll finish out his thought. Okay. Blaspheming. They're blaspheming God's holy house and God's name. There's one other thing in verse 23 really quick that I think is a fascinating teaser. And it says here, on the feast day, many believed, oh, excuse me, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, on the feast day, many believed on his name when they saw the miracles which he did. Now, this sort of indicates Jesus is in the temple. He's teaching. He's 30. He's he's allowed to do this now. He's in the... He's in the temple, he's teaching, and he's performing other miracles. There's just so much we do not know about Jesus, but that certainly suggests that here is Jesus in all his full glory, you know, embarked on his crusade. Martin, we get you back. Are you there? Yes, I'm I'm here. Oh, Where oh, did you lose me? Oh, well, I, uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> the... Uh, <laughs> Right after I spoke, or how yeah, long? or you were you were actually in the middle of in the middle of speaking. You paused for a second. And we were waiting to hear what you're going to say next, and with bated breath. Yeah, you never came back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I I was 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 probably talking about how this is definitely a gospel that, oh, that was yeah. written for Gentiles, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and and we know that because we have references, for example, in verse 13, not oh, just yeah, we to got, Passover, yeah. but to the Jewish Passover. Yeah, okay. yeah we, we yeah. did get so, that. So, we got all so the way through that, that, it was great. Yeah, that, beyond that, the only comment that I really had is, is that this shows that Jesus had the full range of human emotions. He was yeah. somebody mm-hmm. who was angry, and, and he could have been arrested for the things that he was doing yeah. in today, yeah. today disturbing mm-hmm. the peace, you know, assault, destruction of property. I, you know, this. Uh, Martin, today uh, in our society, you're speaking society, like a lawyer, Martin. Work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. What? Gee, sorry, but, but I mean, the point is, I, I'm I'm trying to make sort of an extreme point, which is that what Jesus is doing here is something very different from the way many people often see Jesus. They see him mm-hmm. as somebody who is just kind of a mild, meek, kind, loving person, but he experienced the full range of emotions. And when people were doing things against his father's house, especially, mm-hmm. he was willing to um, 
do what was necessary to really make the point. This is this is a little bit like uh, a, a parent who spanks a child. You 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 do what you need to do to really make the point. The uh, and and right here at the end, the last two verses, Jesus did not commit himself into these people because he knew all men, for he knew what was in men. This is another theme in John: is the unreliability of those who profess to uh, accept or follow him. Uh, the uh, we're, We'll have a passage, not tonight, but later on in John, where uh, Christ is teaching, and it says, and after that point, many of his disciples left and followed him no more. And this is, of course, where he's, he turns to the apostles and said, are you going to go away also? And... Uh, Peter says, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Uh, but this is the, 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 from the very first chapter, again, in John 1, which I, I assume was covered in the last week or two, where you have the darkness comprehended it not. This is, this is one of the themes that, uh, that John is getting across, that here's the Son of God, the Savior of mankind, the creator of all things, God created all things through him, and that he was rejected by those around him. In spite of his teachings, in spite of his miracles, he was rejected. Yeah, yeah, and it says, you know, for he knew what was in man. He understood yeah. how fickle, the perfidy, the way that we can become so deceitful and just turn on a dime. And he recognized what lay ahead for him. So let's get on to John 3. Uh, and this is the whole interchange between Jesus and Nicodemus. Uh, Nicodemus is one of the rulers, undoubtedly a member of the Sanhedrin. Uh, comes to him by night, <laughs> mm-hmm. afraid of afraid of <laughs> approaching Jesus during the daytime. Uh, this is almost certainly while he's still in Jerusalem. Uh, I don't think Nicodemus went traipsing up to Galilee, and so on. Uh, and we have this famous exchange and. Martin, I'm going to let you talk about this exchange first. So we'll pass that to you and then go to Chris, and then I'll, I'll add some things. <laughs> well, the, the fascinating exchange here is about being born again. And, of course, Jesus is using this phrase figuratively, and, and apparently uh, Nicodemus is taking this to be literally, you know, God, how, how can you be born a second time? What does this really mean? Or, or if Nicodemus is understanding it to be figurative, he doesn't understand the, the analogy. And so in verse 5, Jesus responds and talks to him about the idea of the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of, of God changing a person. Um, in essence into a, a spiritual rebirth, and, and the, that is the way that someone can really come close to God. In verse 9, Nicodemus says, well, how can this really happen? How can this be? And Jesus says to him that, um, well, the, I'll, I'll, I'll read this. I, li- I like this. This is from the contemporary English version. Quote, How can you be a teacher of Israel and not know these things? I tell you for certain that we know 
what we are talking about because we have seen it ourselves, but none of you will accept what we say. If you don't believe when I talk to you about things on earth, how can you possibly believe if I talk to you about things in heaven? Close quote. And so the gist of it is is that he's talking about heavenly things, and he's hoping that Nicodemus will understand it. And then he uses this famous phrase about himself, the, the Son of Man, which is his most often used phrase about himself that has great connotations and is a self-reference to him being the Messiah. Back to you. Chris. Uh, Yeah, great. Thank you, Martin. Um, Nicodemus is obviously, he's obviously either heard Jesus or others have recanted to him what they have, excuse me, have um, related to him what they have heard Jesus say. And he is apparently intrigued. He seems to be somewhat enlightened and touched by what Jesus has said because he says, I know God is with you. I mean, he acknowledges that to Jesus. Now, two ways you can read it. You can, I mean, to me, he's going under cover of darkness, as Bruce suggested. It may well be that he doesn't want to be seen with Jesus, but it also might be that as a religious leader, he doesn't want to go, you know, in public, in front of everyone, to appear to perhaps sanction Jesus Christ unless he's learned more from him. And so he's going under cover of darkness, but he wants to learn from him. And... um you know, Jesus is going to, later on, he's going to publicly defend Jesus in John seven forty five through 52. He's going to join the believers at Jesus's burial. We don't know exactly what comes of him, but he certainly does seem to be someone who is at least supportive of Jesus and is not supportive of the way Jesus has been treated. But Jesus's cryptic response, you know, um, when um, he is asked by Nicodemus is, you need to be born again to go to heaven. And, of course, how do you do that? I've already been born. And Jesus makes it very clear. He's he's talking about the necessity for exaltation that we make the covenant of baptism and subsequent covenants that we will make in this life because baptism in the Catholic Church is very clear about this, and I love the way they describe it, that it's the gateway. It's the gateway that begins the covenant path to exaltation is the way that we would describe it, and it's an essential covenant that we must make with our Father in heaven, and it's a public profession of our belief and our willingness to change and to become a, a disciple. You know, we begin that process of becoming like Jesus Christ theoretically. McConkie says, we are born again by degrees to added light and knowledge and called and added desires for righteousness as we keep the commandments. So here we are, you know, we are beginning. Um, the prophet Joseph Smith said, except a man be born again, uh, you know, um, unless he is baptized, he cannot see the kingdom of God without being born of water and the spirit. And so he's going to teach Nicodemus these themes. Nicodemus is taking it very literally. It's hard for him to grasp it. And this is what, you know, um, we read in the Doctrine and Covenants, when the wicked rule, the people mourn. You know, here's one of the supposedly the great leaders in Jewish society who really has no understanding of even the basic doctrines of the gospel, of Mosaic law, or of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as Jesus is going to teach it. And then he's going to use this beautiful, this I call it a wind analogy, where he talks about the Holy Ghost. 
And he says that with the baptism, with baptism, so once we are baptized, the wind bloweth where it listeth, thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. He's trying to help us understand how the Holy Ghost works in our life. But then he says, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. As we listen, the Holy Spirit can guide us and direct us. And I think he's conjoining here, and he's helping us to understand that baptism then, as we learn with the rest, particularly with the restoration of the gospel, with baptism, then we have the privilege of the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost. We can certainly have the Holy Ghost at any time. Anyone can at times in their life. It can speak to individuals, but that constant companionship. And so Jesus Christ is making it very clear that we can have, you know, this presence with us at all times, but we must commit and we must be baptized members of the church. And so in verse 9, too, he's giving a pretty pointed rebuke to uh, Nicodemus because Nicodemus, you know, again, as you read, um, how can you be one of these great teachers in Israel and you don't even know these very basic things? So uh, verse 11 and 12, he's basically saying, sadly, without the Holy Ghost, you are devoid of understanding. And that's a message for all of us today, how essential it is that we try to live and have the Holy Ghost with us as much as possible. Just a couple of things to add uh, on my part. First, uh, uh, with the verse that uh, Chris was quoting there, verse uh, 8, and, and to Martin's earlier point, this is, there, this is a Greek, I don't want to say pun because it's not there for, for humor, but there is a very deliberate ang- uh, ambiguity here because the words for wind, bloweth, and sound are also the Greek words for spirit, voice, and mm. and and speak. So it's basically pneuma is the same word that's being used for the spirit all through this passage. So he says, you know, to pneuma, the, 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 the wind bloweth, but it's, it's makes a sound or, you know, uh, <clears throat> so the spirit speaketh where it wants to. And you hear the sound thereof and the word for sound. There is the same thing you'd say for voice. Uh, so he's there. There, there are a lot of these Greek double meanings of words uh, through uh, through the Gospel of John. Second, that's very interesting. When 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 John the Baptist is preaching, he's preaching unto repentance. He states that, and he talks about the coming of the Holy Ghost because of the Messiah who's going to come. Christ in this chapter gives a whole new meaning and purpose to the baptism, that this is not just for repentance, it is a rebirth, mm-hmm. uh, and that the Spirit is an essential part of that rebirth. It's You have to be born of water and of the Spirit. Uh, and so he's just provided a, a an additional context uh, and meaning and depth to what John has laid the groundwork for. Uh, in his ministry, and then John keeps showing up in these chapters, and mm-hmm. we'll see. I th- I th- in uh, chapter four, John's going to say, "You know, I've done my work. It's time now." He's for the, the Christ. Yeah, he's the Christ. He's the I'm Christ. not the Christ. And you know what? And Jesus Christ goes on, and there's a beautiful sermon embedded here. In fact, um, 
you know, and it's it's an encapsulation. Jesus Christ explains why he came to earth to teach the truth, to atone for the sins of the world, and to save the world. If you read verses fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, um, and you know, these are very well known scriptures. Whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then he talks about how, you know, God in his great mercy sent me not to condemn the world but to save the world so that you might be saved. And he who believeth on him is not condemned but who believeth not is condemned already. And then he says, Right here at the very end, he says that all of the prophets of old testified of me. Imagine being Nicodemus. Jesus Christ is telling him, I am the Messiah that has been testified over and over again by all these great, great prophets and teachers in the Old Testament. And and I am the Son of God and the Savior of the world. It had to be the most startling and the most one of the most powerful moments, um, you know, for me anyways, when I read it over and over again in Jesus' discourses to mankind. Martin. Um, the only final comment I have here about... Uh, Jesus and John the Baptist, is that, to add one more thing to the point that you made, which which is Jesus is sort of elevating and expanding the idea of baptism. Um, he is doing this in a similar way to, to the way he, at the Last Supper, sort of expands upon or recasts or um, remakes or restores or however you want to say it, the the sacrament from the Passover. Um, The Passover feast meant something to Jews, and Jesus didn't take away the meaning that the Jews at the time would have had it, but he points out this new expanded meaning, which includes him, and bringing that back to this baptismal uh, context with 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 John, he's doing a similar thing. He's as as Bruce you pointed out, he's expanding the purpose of baptism far beyond just the cleansing of sins. We've got about uh, a little less than back ten about ten minutes left. Uh, Remember too, oh. it says right here, Jesus Christ is baptizing people. Yeah, that's that's so cool. <laughs> to me and we sometimes kind of skip that over but jesus is about this was baptizing let's go to chapter four uh that jesus says he's he's been in jerusalem he's been there went there for the passover met with nicodemus uh and now goes to galilee and he takes a shortcut through samaria now this is not something jews would normally do samaria of course is a former northern kingdom of israel the Assyrians came in, took the ten proverbial ten lost tribes out, moved in a bunch of people from other nations who were so terrified by the native lions there that they asked the locals who remained what they needed to do and said, well, you need to start worshiping like, like we did, which was on Mount Gerizim uh, there in the northern kingdom. 
And so you, you had the rise of what are known as the Samaritans, or as the Jews called them, the converts of the lions. Uh, and, there was, and the Jews considered them utterly not part of the house of Israel and imposters and trying to claim stuff. And so you had rather hostile feelings between the Jews and the Samaritans. So the first marvelous thing here is that Christ, Jews going from Jerusalem up to Galilee would basically go east uh, and cross Jordan and go up that way to avoid going through Samaria. And Christ is like, no, we're just going to go right through Samaria. Uh, so that's, that's why you have some of the interchanges here with the, the woman at the well. And, of course, they stop near Sychar. Uh, uh, and with Jacob's well there, and there's a woman who comes out. And Christ just casually, she comes out, of course, with the, the rope and the vessel or bucket to get water out of the well. And... Uh, his disciples have gone into town to find food, uh, and so he's he's waiting for them there, and he says, uh, can you give me something to drink? And she's like, wait, why is a Jew talking to me? I'm a Samaritan. Uh, and then we're, we'll, we'll get – I'll hand it to you, Chris, for the, the whole exchange here. But this is this is the setup you have to realize is that she's startled uh, that this this Jew is, uh, and she recognizes him as a Jew, is, is talking to her. Mm-hmm. And we end up with this whole interchange, which is going to... Oops. We end up with this whole interchange that's going to open up Samaria for the preaching of the gospel. Mm-hmm. So, Chris, take yeah, it away. Yeah, to Gentiles. I mean, they, they would consider Gentiles not Jews. Lots, so much fascinating about this, and so I'll just try to go as quickly as possible through this story. But here's a woman, Samaritan woman, and actually in AD 65 in the Mishnah, uh, Jews are told you are to have absolutely nothing to do with Samaritan women. You're not to talk to them. You're not to take water from them. You're not to have break food with them. They're not. You're not to take nothing. You're to have nothing to do with them, which shows the continued contempt that they feel for the Samaritans. So here he comes and he shows up at the well. She shows up in the middle of the day. Now, this is most unusual. When women went to the well, they went early in the morning or they went late in the, you know in the early evening when it was cooler. Because this is a hot time of year, and it's miserable in the sun. It suggests to my mind that here is a woman who is out of favor with other women. And we're going to see a little bit about that when Jesus says, Oh, I know you're not married right now, um, but you've had five husbands before. So here's a woman that's perhaps perhaps on the margins of society, and that's why I love this story. You know, we talked about we begin with Mary. The miracle begins with Mary. And what's fascinating is, really, the miracles of Jesus the first one begins with Mary, where we see the respect Jesus has for his mother and the respect she has for him. Not a sec- She's not second place with Jesus Christ at all. She is revered by Jesus Christ. Women are revered by Jesus Christ throughout the scriptures. And then he's going to end his, actually, his ministry on the cross. And what's one of the last things he does? He tells John, take care of my mother. Well, here we have now a Samaritan woman who is probably someone who is seen as lesser than, as a fallen woman during this period of time. And he encounters her and he says, give me a drink of water. And again, you don't talk to Samaritans. Why are you talking to me? And Jesus Christ is going to tell her about, I'm, you know, you're going to give me water. 
and I would like you to give me water, but I'm, I'm, if you knew who you were talking to, you would realize that I am going to give you living water, water that never stops, that will completely sucker you for the rest of your life. And as they go on, and as he talks with her, and as he explains to her, and he asks her, he very pointedly, it's very interesting the way Jesus interacts with her. He doesn't say to her, so I know you've been married five times. He says, um, so go and get your husband. And she says, well, I don't have a husband right now. And he says, you've spoken truly. You've had five husbands, and the man that you are living with right now is not your husband. That's not just telling her that what she's doing is inappropriate, but it's also telling her that Jesus still loves her, that he still cares about her, and that salvation is possible for her, because that's the message that he's going to give her when he describes himself as living water. She, Regardless of the life that she has lived, what's so sweet about these verses is that she recognizes Jesus Christ as the Son of God, or someone extraordinary, a prophet. But she says, you are a prophet. And she's so enamored when he teaches her that he has, you know, living water, that he has the gospel, um, you know, um, the true gospel to teach to her, that she's going to go sprinting back to the village. And regardless of circumstances in the village, she makes it known to others. She's a great missionary for Jesus Christ, and she encourages them, come out and listen to this man who has the words of God on his lips and come and hear what he has to say and he Jesus is going his disciples are stunned when they come out and see him talking with this woman what are you doing they cannot understand but again he's teaching them a powerful lesson the gospel's for everyone regardless and don't judge people before you teach them just teach them the gospel of Jesus Christ and so he and his disciples then will stay in that period of time and have extraordinary success in conversion in converting people to the gospel of Jesus Christ non-Jews you they would say Martin uh Chris has made some fabulous points here, and and, um, I'll just sort of emphasize one of them, and that is Jesus is not just talking to a Samaritan. He's talking about someone who would have been looked down upon by the Samaritans, and and that's a pretty Mm -hmm. remarkable thing. Um, With that, I'll, I'll pass the baton. Interesting thing is the contrast that John has here because in chapter 3, Christ basically declares his Messiahship to Nicodemus because he says, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. I mean, he's being very clear. The second person John records is this fallen Samaritan woman. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, the interesting thing is he gets better reception from the fallen woman than he does from Nicodemus, mm-hmm. who mostly seems puzzled and so on, and is coming by night and so on. And the woman, her reaction is she runs back to town and says, Hey, everyone, the Christ is here. The Messiah is here. He told uh-huh. me all things that I ever did. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and, and I can unfall. Yeah. I can, I can be forgiven of my sins, and I can be one with God. Yeah. And that's the important thing, because what he said to her was not condemnation. He says... I have living water. Mm-hmm. For uh, you. And and her first reaction, of course, much like maybe Venus, her first reaction is is this uh, uh, what do I want to say? Where do I go to find the Yeah, where, 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 do, I, where do I go to find what, well. Yeah, well, this is this is so great. It's sort of like they say, well, you know, how do I have to crawl back into my mother's room and so on? 
but she actually accepts things much faster. And he tarries there for two days. I'm sitting here. I'm sorry. I'm sitting here looking at it. I'm not seeing any volume from where I'm speaking. Can you hear me okay, Martin? Yes. Okay, because the I'm getting almost no volume here. I haven't been I haven't been touching my mic, and I'm not sure what the problem is here. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, sorry. Our usual, we, you know, it is not it is not a show with me in charge without some sort of technical difficulty. <laughs> we all we? know that. Uh, well, the volume is back up now. Oh, there and and there and now it's yeah. now it's bouncing back up. That's very interesting. The uh, uh, and he tarries there for two days teaching them. Mm-hmm. Again, a, a better we, we don't we don't see. Well, there are a lot of people who are trying to hear him at Jerusalem, so he did he did get some acceptance there. But uh, they believe him, and after they spend two days, of course, what they say is, "Okay, we no longer have to take your word for it. We're all convinced on our own mm-hmm. that this is the Christ, the Savior of the world." So now he has. Uh, Started the missionary work, and uh, uh, as he said earlier uh, to his own disciples, you need to open your eyes because the field is ready to harvest. Uh, so the last thing we hear, and it's we're gonna we're gonna run out of time here in just a second, is the miracle of the uh, noble out of Capernaum, who comes to him. And, and this sets a pattern that we see in the Gospels. This nobleman comes, has obviously heard of him, says, my son is sick. Uh, and Jesus, as he often does, first sort of challenges it. And he says, except ye see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Uh, nobleman doesn't react or bristle. He just says, come down or my son's going to die. Uh and as often happens, Jesus simply says, go, go thy way, thy son liveth. And they, they make a point of the nobleman when he gets word that his son's fever has broken when he's heading home. He says, at what time? And uh, they say, it, you know, it was the uh, seventh hour, about one o'clock in the afternoon. He's, and he thinks that's, he says, that's basically the same time that Jesus said my son was going to be better. So we have, and this is listed as the second miracle that he did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee, uh, the other one being the turning the wine into water. Though, as per Chris's comment earlier, there's reference to miracles at Jerusalem, so we don't... It's the second one that's recorded here in John. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm expecting the break in at any second here. Yeah. <laughs> and and it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting, too, to contemplate the purpose of miracles, how miracles work, why Jesus Christ performs so many miracles, and maybe that's something for us to take up on another half hour segment or so. Mm-hmm.